Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this podcast. Today is uh, January 18th, 2022, and I'm very fortunate to have a very esteemed writer, chronicler of the Supreme Court uh, today to talk about her new book, which is called Justice on the Brink. I'm talking, of course, about Linda Greenhouse, who for almost 30 years, I think it was 29 years, 29 court sessions that you cover the the court for the New York Times. Uh, Is that what it was? 29 uh, sessions or 29 terms? Something like that. Who's counting, right? You've seen a lot. And I can't think of anyone actually who's better positioned to write the kind of book that you wrote, which is to say a book about the crisis that we're going through right now. And I have to say that uh, you got me with the title, Justice on the Brink. What a wonderful title. Did you come up with that or was your editor uh, responsible? I cannot tell a lie, Bill. It was my wonderful Random House editor, David Ebershoff, came up with it. Well, it's a great title because the first question that comes to mind is, on the brink of what? And I think you're talking about the brink of collapse, just about. Am I too far off the uh, path there? Well, uh, that's certainly what was in my mind. But, of course, somebody might read it and say, oh, we're on the brink of the final victory over the Supreme Court that we've been trying to get since uh, the defeat of Robert Bork in 1987. At last, it's within our grasp. So the brink can be is, is in the eye of the beholder. Well, looking at this from that historical point of view that you're able to give us, uh, just how bad is it compared to, with, say, when you started covering the court? When I say bad, I'm talking about the relationship between the justices themselves and also between the court and the American public. Well, um, I don't pretend to have an intimate knowledge of the justices' relationships to one another, except through their opinions. And it's obviously a very a sharply divided court. Of course, it's not as sharply divided uh, as it was before Justice Ginsburg died in September of 2020, because then it was a court divided five to four. Now it's a court divided six to three. There's a supermajority of conservative justices on the court. And what my book chronicles is the rise of what you might well call the Trump court, the term when three Trump-appointed justices were sitting on the court and uh, exerting great influence, not only over what the court did that term, which ran from October uh, 2020 through uh, the into the summer of 2021, but the cases they added to the court's agenda that are being argued and decided in the current term, I'm talking about abortion, I'm talking about the Second Amendment, uh, so it really is about the influence of the Trump appointees over our legal agenda, our legal agenda as a country, and legal agenda, of course, as we know, means political agenda, too. Now, these Trump appointees that you're referring to, that would be <clears throat> Justices Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and Barrett, you, you write uh, in your book about how it was always about abortion, I think is the line that you use. I take it you believe that their appointments were all about abortion? Uh, they were largely about abortion, yes. Um, I mean, don't forget that ever since 1980, the rise of Ronald Reagan, Republican presidential candidates have run on a party platform pledging them to appoint 
judges and justices who would work to overturn Roe versus Wade. I mean, that's really pretty astonishing. I I omit the second Trump election, uh, 2020, because, of course, the Republican Party was in such thrall to Trump at that time that they didn't bother to write a platform. So he didn't run on any platform. His platform was just Trump, but every other Republican uh, candidate. So um, that was always in mind. It was certainly in mind with Amy Coney Barrett, who in her private capacity before she became a judge had signed um, uh, very extreme statements about uh, what was wrong with Roe versus Wade. So uh, we have no doubt where these individuals are coming from. And I personally, as an analyst of the court, don't have any doubt about what they're about to do. At their confirmation hearings, they made it seem, and I think it applies to all three of them, they made it seem that they respected precedent a great deal, that it was actually in the DNA of the court to respect precedent. But if they overturn Roe v. Wade, it seems as though that's a direct repudiation of precedent. Is that going too far? <laughs> well, um, you know, they're playing, they're, they're, they're gaslighting. They're playing a game with the public here. So when the Mississippi abortion case, Dobbs, was argued um, last month, back in December, Justice Kavanaugh uh, posed a series of questions to uh, the Solicitor General, uh, who was arguing um, on behalf of the abortion clinics that are challenging the Mississippi abortion law. And he said, look, we overturned um, uh, Plessy against Ferguson with Brown and Board of Education. We overturned Bowers against Hardwick with Lawrence against Texas. We've overturned, uh, you know, regularly. So what's wrong with overturning? And of course, those examples are completely beside the point, because in each example Brett Kavanaugh gave, the court went from a regime of no rights to a regime of rights. Okay, we got the right to equal protection in Brown against Board of Education. We got the right to um, homosexuality in Lawrence against Texas and, and, and so on. And here, we would have the court taking away a right that it recognized 49 years ago this month. So uh, his comparison, as I say, was just gaslighting. Well, one of the tests has to be changed circumstances. What did they argue for the changed circumstance that should allow the court to overrule such an historic precedent? What, what, will, what will the court argue? What will the decision say? No, what, did the, I, court, what did the litigants say? How did Mississippi oh, well, justify making a claim that the circumstances had changed? Well, it, it, it has a made-up claim that, um, yeah, the right to abortion was, was okay, uh, or, you know, plausibly maybe okay back in 1973 because, uh, you know, women didn't have any political power. They didn't have any economic power. And so uh, uh, forcing motherhood on them really was very disabling. And, but now Mississippi says, uh, you know, women are everywhere. Women have, uh, you know, full autonomy in the workplace and the economy and so on. And so motherhood isn't that much of a burden. And so that's the changed circumstance. Now, I, I, have, I have trouble saying this with a straight face because, of course, it makes no sense as constitutional argument. And it left me gasping for air when Justice Amy Coney Barrett uh, commented 
from the bench during that argument that, well, you know, uh, motherhood doesn't need to be a burden because under the safe harbor laws in every state, uh, if you have a baby and you decide you don't want it, you can just leave it off uh, at a firehouse or a police station or a hospital, and these laws will uh, protect you from prosecution for child abandonment, and the baby will be taken care of, and that's fine. Now, really, she's given birth to five children and adopted two others, and can she really sit there and say that somebody, a woman can have a baby and then kind of forget that she ever was a mother and go on with her life? I mean, maybe, but I'm a mother, and, uh, you know, that's just, as I say, I had to go I had to go take a brisk walk when that argument was finished. Would things have been different if the hearing had been televised? Do you think she would have said that, knowing that people could do exactly what you did and look at her and ask that question of, are you being serious about this? Well, it was audio live stream. So and there was, I think, a huge public that was listening to it in real time. I'm not sure um, televising it would have made a substantial difference. So apparently the word was that she was uh, the chosen one. I think that's the phrase that you use in your book to uh, uh, fill the, the, um, the, the opening that had come about when Justice Ginsburg uh, uh, passed away. How close did she come to being the second uh, appointment rather than the third. I had heard a story from someone telling me that he's in the know. A federal judge, a friend of mine, said that she actually was in the wings at the Gorsuch hearing. She was personally there, and they were prepared to put her forward as the nominee if, I'm sorry, uh, Kavanaugh, not Gorsuch, if Kavanaugh had faltered. Well, that, that's possible. Um, you know, at the time of the, when, when Justice Anthony Kennedy retired in the summer of uh, 2019 and was replaced by uh, Justice Kavanaugh. Uh, you know, some people said, oh, Amy Barrett should be your nominee. And Trump said at that time, no, not yet. I'm, I think this is a direct quote. It's in my book. I'm saving her for Ginsburg. Okay. Now, of course, the Kavanaugh nomination looked like it might possibly have, have cratered. So it's it's plausible that uh, they would have substituted her if Kavanaugh had not um, thrown the fit uh, that he threw uh, because he knew that unless he was extremely bold uh, defending himself, uh, Trump would have pulled the nomination. So, yes, it's possible. Now, before I ask you some questions about or some more questions about uh uh, the book and how you uh, wrote the book, I have to ask you because you write about it and it's even more pressing now than at the time you wrote about Justice Breyer and whether he's going to retire to allow President Biden to appoint another liberal to the court. Do you have any take on that today or any take that's different today than it was when you wrote the book? I have no take on it. People are still beating up on Breyer to retire and he still hasn't retired. That's about all I know. Well, to, to an observer like myself, it, it's just a baffling thing that he would take that position knowing full well, I take it, what the consequences are going to be if he doesn't retire and things change and his seat is ultimately filled by a conservative. He must know that. So I guess I want, I just, and maybe you're not in any way able to help me with this, but I just don't understand why it should even be an issue. I cannot help you with that. I haven't talked to the man. 
I, I had an exchange with uh, Larry Tribe recently, and he had this position that said, don't bother the man, he'll do what he wants to do, which I guess is a fair way of looking at it. But for those of us who look at the court, look at the future, just have to wonder what's going on. But okay, I'll leave that aside since we really don't have any inside information that we can go on. This book is different from other books that you've written. Um, you wrote one biography, you've written other kinds of books. You wrote a one, wonderful introduction to the Supreme Court for the Oxford University Press uh, series of uh, very short introductions. How do you uh, compare and contrast writing this book with writing those other books that you've written? Yeah, this is my sixth book. A couple of them I have co-authors, but the sixth book with my with my name on the cover. And it each book is different. Uh, this was really different because um, Random House came to me uh, in the late fall of 2020, or late October, maybe early November, and said, how about writing a book that would be a chronicle of this term that's unfolding? And we would like to publish it next fall as closely as possible to the first Monday in October 2021. And that's a really short time frame to write a book, as as you know, and it's certainly compared to my previous efforts at writing books, but I said yes. So what that meant was I turned it in chapter by chapter, and every chapter is a month of the term, and I wrote it in essentially real time. And as I say at the end of the book in the author's note, I did not... I didn't have the ability, but I also didn't really want to go back at the end when the manuscript was complete and kind of um, fixed up my analyses or my predictions or whatever, and make myself look smarter. I just left every <laughs> chapter the way the way things um, appeared to me at the time that I was writing. So I basically uh, worked every day. I mean, the pandemic helped, of course, because... Uh, there wasn't much uh, distraction in my life. Um, worked every day on it from uh, early winter of uh, of 2020 until I turned in the manuscript um, at the end of July uh, this last summer. Well, when you go about describing uh, what the court did in a particular case, uh, as you do in the book, um, you, you must be doing it differently than when you were uh, covering the court for the Times, which is to say, it seems as though there's there's less of the journalist's objectivity and more of your own personal view on what happened. Well, I mean, yes and no. Uh, it, it was quite similar to what I did on the Daily Beat because my view always was to simply say to a reader, "Oh, the Times, uh, the uh, the Supreme Court did X today." Uh, it's very unhelpful. It really the journalistic mission, in my view. I always felt that I needed to put a decision in context. That is to say, um, how did this case come to the court? Why did the court decide to accept this case for decision? Uh, what are the implications of the decision? What does it mean for the next time a dispute like this comes along? That kind of thing. So, uh, you know, my personal view of the matter was really neither here nor there, but my uh, my analytical tools were, I felt, you know, extremely important. And to the degree that that kind of analysis distinguished my reporting from 
other reporting on that. That's what it was. It was context, context, context. And I think in this book, uh, you know, I, I, I don't actually think there's a place in the book where I kind of, in, certainly not in the first person, give my view, my, my preferred outcome, but I, I structure my account to let the reader know um, what is uh, missing in, in what happened, uh, you know, what, uh, what traps the court walked into or what games the court might have been playing. Um, again, all uh, context so that the reader can have the full benefit of my understanding of what occurred based on all the years that I've been doing this kind of thing. And all of that experience seems to tell you that Justice or Chief Justice Roberts is in a kind of perilous place, walking a tightrope. Well, there's a real irony to John Roberts' position. Um, you know, in, in November of 2016, when it looked like Hillary Clinton was going to be elected president, that's what most of us, most of the country expected, uh, she would then have been in a position to fill the vacancy that Senator Mitch McConnell had prevented President Obama from filling ever since the previous February when Justice Scalia died. And had a President Hillary Clinton been able to fill that vacancy, there would have been five liberal, relatively liberal justices to Chief Justice Roberts Wright, and he would have been irrelevant. He would have not had the ability to set the course of events. Of course, that didn't happen. He dodged a bullet. Trump is elected. We get these three conservative appointments. And irony of ironies, there are now five justices to John Roberts' right, not to his left, but to his right. And so uh, there's a sense in which he cannot control events now any more than he would have been able to control them had that first scenario come to pass. And so we see, for instance, um, in the Texas vigilante law, the Texas SB8 anti-abortion law, when that came up to the court on an emergency application by the Texas abortion clinics at the beginning of September, this past September, uh, looking for a stay so that the law wouldn't go into effect until its full dimensions could be sorted out in court. It takes five votes to grant a stay and Chief Justice Roberts was a vote to grant the stay. And the three liberal justices, <clears throat> Breyer, Kagan, and Sotomayor, voted to grant the stay. And that was only four. And he was outvoted by the five justices to his right. So that you know, tells us that he's um, really fighting to keep control of the court that has his name on the door, the Roberts Court. Well, some are suggesting that it's not his court anymore, or it won't be in the uh, very near future. Is that going too far? Well, it's a little bit situational. I mean, I think he uh, he's a very conservative judge, and he's not some squishy, you know, moderate in the middle of the court, as some people uh, portray him. So, uh, you know, he's not going to be wringing his hands over every conservative outcome. I mean, for instance, he was fully on board at the end of the last term, which I write about in the book, uh, on, on the voting rights case from Arizona that uh, took a big whack out of what was left of the Voting Rights Act, that kind of thing. And he's fully on board in the court's effort to uh, break down the wall of separation between church and state. So, you know, it's not that he's just out there crying in the wilderness, but um, I think he does have 
to a greater degree than those five justices to his right. He does have the kind of institutional welfare of the court in view. And so um, in things like the Texas SB8 case, where the court absolutely should have intervened to keep that law from going into effect on just kind of neutral grounds, he's going to end up losing. Well, you used an interesting phrase, uh, institutional welfare, um, which is another way of saying his concern about the legacy of the court that he presided over. Um, Some people could argue, and I would, that we have a kind of a tribalism on the court now, that these factions on the court are so entrenched that they almost mirror the tribalism that we have in American politics. To the extent that that might be true, what kind of influence does Roberts have in trying to curb or conform behavior of the justices? Is, is there any chance he could take them aside and say, this isn't good for the court to be doing this and have them listen, I guess, is the better way of putting it. Well, you know, he may have done that. He may have tried that in the Texas SBA case. Uh, but, you know, the chief justice has does not really have, you know, all the, the, the power that I think most people would associate with such a fancy title. Chief justice, remember, he's not chief justice of the Supreme Court. The title is Chief Justice of the United States, but he's only one vote out of nine. And uh, if he can't get four people to go along with him to make five, he's just out of luck. You wrote a book about Justice Blackman, Harry Blackman. I know it's not fair to ask this, but I'll do it anyway. What would he think about what's going on in the court now? Oh, I think he'd be beside himself because he was, uh, you know, really a stickler for um, tradition and and rules. Um, uh, there was a period during which he was very, very upset uh, the, the, as, as uh, the death penalty was ramping up in the 1980s, having been uh, reauthorized by the court in the mid-1970s. Uh, there were a couple of cases where the court refused to hear, refused to stay an execution, that is to say, let the inmate get it executed, while his constitutional claims were still pending at the court, had not even yet been reviewed by the court. And uh, this bothered Blackman tremendously. In in my Blackman biography, Becoming Justice Blackman, I have a a lot about that that episode. So he would be, um, of course, he's very interested in preserving the right to abortion. His name is on the row against Wade opinion, as everybody knows. He would have been very, very unhappy today. I'm struck as I go through the years' opinions at uh, at the uh, the tone of them, especially the dissenting opinions. And I'm wondering what you make of the fact that you can have someone like Alito. I think it was twice or three times you in your book referred to one of his dissenting opinions as angry. And one was angry, another was scathing. I'm wondering what you think about the way the justices get along in print, and whether it has any effect on their actual relationships, or whether it's all for show. Well, you know, I never like to pretend to know more than I know. I do not know the quality of their interpersonal relationships. How could I really? Uh, but, uh, you know, the sort of word on the street, for instance, uh, was that when Justice Scalia made some very snippy, disrespectful remarks in print about uh uh, Justice Sandra Day O'Connor's opinions, that that was a real turnoff for her and kind of pushed her away from 
the conservative side of the court and, and, and into the middle where she spent, um, I, I would say, about three quarters of her, of her tenure on the court. Now, whether that's true, I don't know, uh, but that's, that's a theory. Uh, it, it's hard to think that they could all be, um, you know, warm and cuddly after taken out after one another in their opinions. But, you know, on the other hand, Bill, they're all grown-ups, and they know that no one could get anything done without five votes. And so, you know, it will behooves any member of the court to just kind of uh, sulk in his or her corner. You've got to assume you can find four people that you can work with. Uh, at least that's got to be your hope. And so I think that's a, you know, that's a mediating reality that keeps them uh, working together as, as the term goes on. Well, I read a couple of studies about um, justices reading their dissents in open court, the oral dissent. And apparently it does have an effect on the other justices. And I noticed in your book that that happens uh, still. Today, we have justices taking to the public forum, so to speak, in court, in reading dissents that are just lashing out at the other side. Do you think the public would be surprised at the extent of the divisions, ideological, maybe even personal divisions between the two sides? Because these dissents, whether they're written or oral, just seem to be just so filled with with anger and passion. Well, let me just make a comment about the oral dissent. Uh, and and I, I do write about this in, in the book, but uh, what's happened since uh, the pandemic, of course, first, um, for more than a year, the court was not actually sitting on the bench. The court was hearing arguments uh, over their home telephone lines. And so uh, they were not announcing opinions one way or the other. Neither the majority nor the dissent was actually speaking. Simply the opinion would just show up at a specific time on the court's website for everybody to read. There was no there was no voice to it. And now that they're back in the courtroom, still under very rigid COVID constraints where the public is not in the courtroom, just the lawyers and the and the reporters, uh, they're not announcing opinions from the bench yet. And I don't know if they ever will again, uh, which I actually think is very much too bad. I think that's a very worthwhile exercise, both majority and the you know pretty rare occasional uh, oral dissent. But uh, that wasn't your question. Your question was, would the public be surprised to think that um, they kind of go at it against one another? Um, I, I don't think so. I mean, I don't know, but my view of the public isn't that they're so naive to think that um, it's all sweetness and light uh, among Five people, nine people of very disparate views who were dealing with some of the most contentious issues in American society. So, uh, you know, it's hardly surprising that they can get a little snappy with one another. Well, the thing I worry about is the, uh, and I, actually they worry about this in the Federalist Papers too, number 78, the idea that the court can become an extension of the other branches of government. And if that happens, we're doomed. And it seems to me that this tribalism that drives American politics is now driving the court so that there's really no difference between the court and American politics, so much so that it was rumored, I shouldn't say rumored, apparently on occasion, 
Justice Scalia would simply be reciting talking points of the Republican Party when he would talk in court. Uh, I have real fear, a, a real fear that the court is no longer a separate branch of government that has actually been subsumed subsumed within the executive branch and also to the extent that the legislative branch has any effect or any ability to actually control who gets appointed. Well, I think your fear is well-founded. I mean, look at the uh, the vaccine case, the OSHA vaccine case that came down the other day. Um, you know, that it certainly looks like the majority there, uh, six, to, six to three, um, that uh, blocked the uh, implementation of the Biden administration's vaccine rule for employers of 100 or more people uh, certainly looked like they just embraced the, uh, you know, the anti-vax talking points about, you know, liberty. There was no sense of a, a communal obligation, no understanding that the mission of the Occupational Safety and Health Administration was to protect the health and welfare of the American workforce. It was just um, just kind of a political screed. Uh, very scary and very unfortunate. We've had other occasions in our history of the Supreme Court uh, having problems, mostly in the 1930s with the famous four horsemen standing in the way of the progressive economic legislation of the Roosevelt uh, administration. But the court came back from that pretty quickly. Uh, they changed their mind. The four horsemen changed their minds, and they got with the program, so to speak. I don't know. This is just, I think, an informed opinion, but it's just my own personal opinion. I don't know that the Supreme Court can come back and have legitimacy with the public if it overturns Roe v. Wade. Am I going too far? Well, we'll see. You know, um, I would like to think that there would be a big public uprising uh, when the court, over. I'll say when, because the court's going to overturn Roe either explicitly or, or functionally. Uh, this this term um, is the public gonna you know sort of rise up and say okay we've got to we've got to do the hard work of getting people into political office who will uh, appoint judges and justices uh, who are uh, not in the grip of religious extremism uh, or extreme ideology when it comes to uh, reproductive rights and reproductive justice? I don't know. I'd like to think so. I can't. I'm, I'm not 100% sure that will happen. Well, we've uh, pretty much come to the end. And uh, I just want to say one thing. Whatever happened to judicial modesty, the idea that you get to the high court, you look around and you consider very deeply what's happened before, it's almost as though the new crop of justices, the new three, have no sense of history. Well, you know, you, you raise a very interesting point because it seems to me there's a sense in which we ought to be seeing more modesty from these particular justices, certainly from Justice Gorsuch, who's sitting in a seat to which Donald Trump was not entitled, and Justice Barrett. Who was uh, whose nomination was forced through without a single Democratic vote on the eve of the 2020 election, as millions of Americans had already cast their early ballots. The election was already going on when Mitch McConnell and Donald Trump forced that nomination through. Um, 
So it seems to me that would call for a little modesty, but we're not seeing that. Well, Linda, I want to make sure I make this point very clearly. You have written a very important book. It's very important, not just because it gives us the, the, the backstory of what's going on in Washington. You've been able to take these cases and show where it appeared at one term, how bit by bit by bit, the traditional values of the court have been assaulted. I don't think anyone's done that to date. And now we can say, beyond our just wild complaints about what the court is doing, we now know how they're doing it in these cases. It's the, it's the uh, microscopic approach, I guess. And it's very valuable because I don't know that anyone has been able to write about the court in the way that you have to explain to us not just the doctrines, but the, the dynamics of what's going on in the court. And I really am just delighted that you wrote the book that you did. Well, thank you, Bill. I really appreciate that. And I appreciate being on your podcast.